Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Steve Miller, a Bible prophecy resource editor and author of the new book, Foreshadows, 12 Mega Clues That Jesus' Return Is Nearer Than Ever. And Steve Miller, welcome to the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. It's great to be with you and your audience, Rob. Thank you for inviting me. You know, you start out with something very important and something that I'd never contemplated before, but it has to do with shadows and ties into the title of the book, Foreshadows. But what do shadows reveal? Uh, the shadows reveal what is to come. Basically, what's happening is, in Scripture, we look at the signs of the times. We look at what's supposed to happen in the last day, during the tribulation, during our Earth's final days. And those events are so major that they are casting their shadow into our day. And that's what I talk about in the book. I look at the different trends today that show that our world is ramping up toward the end times. And that's the significance of the shadows. You talk about Jesus' return, and I think some people are kind of confused because they may confuse Jesus' return for his church, for his bride, or Jesus' return to establish the millennial kingdom. So would you clarify for us what you're referring to in the title of the book? In the book, I share uh, what is called the pre-tribulational rapture view, which is basically this. We all agree that your tribulation lasts for seven years, but... There are clues in Scripture that indicate that the church will be taken up before the tribulation. First Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, and Revelation 3.10 all show that Christians are not destined for God's wrath. The tribulation, the purpose of the tribulation is for God to pour out His wrath on a rebellious earth. And an analogy that we can point to in Scripture is if we look back at the book of Genesis, we see that before God poured out His wrath on earth, he had Noah, his wife, and his family all get into the ark, and the ark preserved them through the tribulation of the flood. God preserved that family, and then after the flood was over, the family got off the ark and uh, continued life on earth. And in a similar sense, in the future, Scripture tells us we're not destined for God's wrath. There's no reason for Christ to punish his bride. We will be removed from the earth. And so passages that talk about Christ meeting us in the air and the dead in Christ rising first, and we will be taken up with them. That talks about the rapture. Then at the end of the seven-year tribulation, we are coming down with Christ in Revelation chapter 19, where Christ brings final judgment on earth to set up his kingdom, and that would be the second coming itself. So the second coming of Christ as a whole has two phases. There's the first phase, which is the rapture, taking up the believers to remove them from the earth, and then there's the second phase where Christ returns to bring judgment and to set up his kingdom. 
I know the book, Steve, that foreshadows is not making any predictions regarding the timing, but in the past there have been previous predictions, you know, 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988 and so forth. And so I think a lot of people just kind of have tuned out to all of this. Why is it important for those people to tune back in? The main reason is the words of Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus taught the disciples about the end times, they had asked him, what will be the signs of your coming? And Christ could have at that moment said, you shouldn't be looking into that. You shouldn't be curious about when that's going to happen. You shouldn't be asking about the sign. But Christ didn't rebuke them. If anything, he gave a very long and detailed message, one of the longest sermons he had given to the disciples. And in that sermon, three times he said, keep watch, keep alert, keep watch. Now, within the context of those passages, he said, you do not know the day or the hour of the Lord's coming. But at the same time, he said, keep watch. So he's saying two things. Keep watch, meaning that we are to live with a continual sense of anticipation that he could return at any time. But also, don't speculate on the day or hour that I will return. And so we need to keep those two things separate. We shouldn't try to guess when he will return, which many people have attempted to do. They try to read things into Scripture and say, well, this is a clue that he's going to return on this day or hour. But Christ says, don't do that. But he did say, keep watch. He wants to be alert. He wants to be aware of what's going on. And that's what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us what the signs of the times are so we can be aware of them. Uh, The most miraculous, perhaps, is the cornerstone of all of this, the rebirth of Israel. And many people don't think about how miraculous this actually was. Would you tell us some of the underlying prophecies and how could a nation come back together after being disbanded for so long? All through Scripture, when it talks about the end times, Israel is in place. And as we all know, historically, back in AD 70, uh, Rome came in to Israel and destroyed Jerusalem, burned down the temple, and the Jewish people were scattered all across the earth. So Israel was wiped out. Israel was no longer a nation. And so for 2,000 years, through no Jewish nation, the Hebrew language dies out, and people wonder, well, these prophecies about God's promises that Israel would be established again, maybe they should be interpreted symbolically, or maybe they should be interpreted allegorically, because they began to doubt that Israel would ever be a nation again. That's the extent to which Israel became destitute was made clear by Mark Twain when Mark Twain traveled to the Holy Land in the mid-1800s, and he wrote about Israel being the most desolate place on earth, how much of a desert and a wasteland it was. And so people thought it's going to be impossible for Israel to ever become a nation again. But in the uh, early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, some Jewish people began to get a vision for moving back to the land. And sure enough, over time, by 1948, Israel became a nation again, uh, which is a true miracle. Nothing like that has ever happened before. Never before has a nation lost its land, been scattered across the earth, and then come back together again. And what makes this so prophetically significant is that in order for the end times to happen, the nation of Israel has to be in place because it is the stage on which the end times play out. So the very fact that Israel has become a nation again, which is such an incredible miracle, is confirmation that what God has said prophetically in Scripture will happen. 
There are people who believe erroneously that the church has replaced Israel, and I'd love for you to dispel that because this is a literal Israel we're talking about. Yes, it's interesting. We start with Genesis twelve three, where God said to Abraham that he was going to give him this land, and God made it clear that this was a forever promise. And then later on, as we go through the book of Genesis and we go through the rest of the Old Testament, God continues to reiterate that this is a forever promise. This is a promise that will not die out. And in Leviticus, in the book of Leviticus, uh, chapter 14, verse 26, God says, Even when my people rebel against me, I will not spurn against them. I will not spurn away from them. And interestingly enough, in Romans, in uh, Romans chapter 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul goes through a major explanation of God's plan for Israel. And in the beginning of chapter 11, he says, Has God cast off his people? No, not at all. And then later on, at the end of Romans 11, he talks about how God's promises are irrevocable. If God's promises are irrevocable, then that means his promise to Abraham still stands. So all the promises in Scripture that were designated to Israel still belong to Israel. It just so happens that Christ is now working through the church to reach the world, but the church cannot claim those promises for itself. There are a series of things that are transpiring right now, and I want to get into the list that you've put together in your book, Foreshadows. And one of them, very disturbing, is this rise of globalism. Uh, Why is this an essential component to the end times or the last days? The reason it's so essential is because in Genesis 13, 7, we read that there will one day come a one-world ruler who rules over every nation and tongue and tribe and language. For there to be a one-world ruler, somehow we have to get from where we are now, where there's something like 200 countries in the world, and there are many different governments, many of which disagree with each other, and somehow narrow all that down to a one-world ruler. And a key way in which that is happening is globalism, the movement of globalism. And there are two primary organizations. There are many organizations that are very globalist in their thinking, but the two primary ones are the World Economic Forum and the United Nations. And the World Economic Forum, their approach to today's problems, they say we are all interconnected. People all over the globe are interconnected together. And therefore, we should view problems in the world as global problems. And global problems require global solution. And when COVID-19 hit, the head of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, said, did you notice how all the different governments of the world reacted in different ways to COVID? We can't have that happening. We can't have the world going off in all different directions when it comes to dealing with major problems. We need to have some way of dealing with problems altogether. And Klaus Schwab, in his book on COVID-19, The Great Reset, He said, in the future, if we want to achieve a better outcome, the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economy. Every country from the United States to China must participate in every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed. And he said that the problem today is not that we have globalization. The problem is that we have a lack of global governance. So in all those ways, he's saying, look, if we're going to solve the world's problem, we need to have global governance. We need to have a way of everyone in the world working together. And what he leaves unsaid is that that implies if you're going to have everyone in the world working together, you need to have some kind of vested body that has the authority to impose those solutions 
all across the world. And the United Nations works in a similar way. They say we need to work together. We're all in this together. We need to solve our problems together. And they have what they call Agenda 2030, which they say, if we're going to solve the problems of the world, we need to do it together. So the mentality is that we're all supposed to work together. But to say that we work together makes it necessary for governments to agree, okay, we're going to give someone or we're going to give somebody out there control over everyone. It sounds like a clear attack on the concept of national sovereignty. And of course, that has been one of the foundations of the United States of America and certainly other nations. Is that what we're seeing? Yes, it is. And I'll touch on just one example of what you're talking about. National sovereignty would say that each government, each country has a right to decide how it's going to deal with COVID. But recently, last March, the White House created an agreement template and sent it to the World Health Organization and sent it to a World Health Governance Health Body saying what we need is for the World Health Organization to be able to say, this is what all the countries in the world need to do. This is how they need to respond to uh, emergency crises. And so what the White House was doing was essentially saying, we are willing to yield our sovereignty. We are willing to give up our right to say how we should respond to health crises, and instead we are willing to delegate that to the World Health Organization. Well, it ended up being voted down. But what that points out is this. You've got a White House who, without going to Congress and without going to the voters of the United States, was willing to yield sovereignty over health issues to a world organization. And this is the type of thinking that leads to the globalism you were talking about and the danger of governments expanding to the point where people lose their freedoms. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Our guest is Steve Miller. We continue in a moment. Online at shillingshow.com. Borderhawk.news is a one-stop shop with the latest news about immigration, nationalism, and globalism. The Borderhawk staff daily curates immigration news stories and in the fashion of the Drudge Report, updates the site with cutting-edge content and original first-class commentary. Borderhawk.news highlights national and international media reports, tweets and nuggets buried in local news blurbs, polls, video clips, and policy research. Borderhawk is pro-legal immigration, pro-rule of law, but against an unsecure border as countless Americans have suffered violence at the hands of criminal illegal aliens. And an increasing number of Americans are concerned about how mass migration affects their daily life. Borderhawk.news will remain on the forefront of the immigration issue with a buffet of info to read, evaluate, and share. Bookmark Borderhawk.news. Add them on social media at Borderhawknews on Twitter. Get your fix online at shillingshow.com. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues. Steve Miller is our guest, author of Foreshadows, 12 Mega Clues, that Jesus' return is nearer than ever. I'd like to go now to technology and surveillance, and particularly I want to start with communist China because it is absolutely frightening what's going on there. Yes, it is very frightening. I would say the two things that we need to pay attention to most about what's going on in China One is the social credit system that they have set up for their people. This social credit system is still being rolled out. Not everyone is enrolled. China is a very big country, many, many people. It's just a very ambitious project, but basically what it is is the social credit system assigns everyone a score. And based on their behavior, 
they can be rewarded points or they can have points subtracted from their score. So if they behave well, if they behave in ways that the government encourages, then they gain points and they gain benefits and privileges because of that. But if they do things that their neighbors or the area in which they live in or that the government considers unhealthy, negative, considers a threat to the government itself, then they lose points and they lose their privileges. So in this way, the government is able to control people's behavior. It encourages certain behavior and it discourages certain behavior. And this is all encompassing. And it's not just the government that's watching people. It's your neighbors, too. Your neighbors can actually have apps on their iPhone that help contribute to your score or take away from your score. So your neighbors are watching over you, and they're telling the government what they see happening. And so this creates a very oppressive system of fear where people are walking on eggs all the time because they're afraid that they might be reported and given a negative score and they don't want that to happen. They don't want to lose their privileges or things like that. So you've got the social credit system there in China, which is already having an impact in other places. There are some countries in Europe and some cities in Europe that are starting to look at social credit systems to be applied toward green energy policies. They would uh, score people based on how well they are conforming to green energy policies in Europe. As we know, with the way government works, when government increases its power, it really gives them back. So if you start with green uh, environmental policies and scoring people on that basis, eventually you can see governments expanding that to what China does, controlling people in all different ways, all across the spectrum, the way they think, the way they act. The other thing we need to watch out for in China is their surveillance system. They have created incredible, pervasive surveillance systems using camera and artificial intelligence technology that has created a super state in which there's no place to hide. People cannot hide what they're doing from the government. And so this surveillance technology is made available in other countries. There are about 60 different countries in the world that actually buy their surveillance technology from China. And China has basically set up these systems so that a government can put them in place and surveil their people. So as this technology spreads, basically what it does is makes government makes it easier for governments to control their people. We are entering what's called the age of digital dictatorships, where digitally a person can watch you and control you. Back in the days of the uh, Cultural Revolution in China, back in the 1970s, when the government was concerned about people doing things that would undermine the government, they had to depend on people's eyes. They had to depend on actual being able to see things. But now you've got cameras that can get into every part of your life and surveil what you're doing. And surveillance basically is a way of bringing total conformity among the people, which uh, is a very authoritarian thing to happen and a very scary thing to happen. It certainly is. And then some of the other technologies, for example, that they can get a cardio imprint and identify people from a great distance based on the pattern of their heart rhythm or looking at their eyes and their iris print. I mean, there's really no place to hide, is there? Yes, exactly. And what's frightening about this is we lose our sense of privacy. We lose any privacy that we have at all. And if you look at what's happening in China, really what it does is enables them to uh, not just control the way their people think and the way their people act, but to make sure that they conform with uh, government policy. Now, in China, one other thing that's happening, too, is that they are changing everything to a digital currency to where the government assigns everybody a digital wallet. And everybody's income goes into that digital wallet, and then when they make their purchases, they have to use that digital wallet to buy things. Well, when you have a digital wallet that's controlled by the central bank of a country, 
what that means is that the government has access to turning on or turning off your digital wallet. So the government is able to decide whether you're able to participate in the economy, whether you're able to have a job, whether you're able to buy or sell things. That sounds like a foreshadow of the Antichrist using the mark of the beast to be able to allow people to buy and sell. And there is a move all across the world for countries to investigate the digital currencies and say, hey, we could be doing the same thing that China does. We're afraid of people not paying their taxes. We're afraid of illegal financial activity. Let's control it by having central banks impose digital currencies on everyone. And these digital currencies would be controlled by the government, where the government is able to control your wallet, turn it on, and turn it off. Right now, there are eight countries in the world that have started using digital currencies, and there will be more to come. And back in March, the U.S. White House asked Congress to begin investigating the feasibility of using a digital currency here in America. And they're supposed to come out with a report on that in September. So this is directly tied to a one-world economy, which is heading our way like a freight train. And one of the things that is so problematic that really seems unsolvable is the crushing debt load that's carried not only by the United States, but by nations across the world, and how this could interconnect with debt problems in every nation if one goes belly up like Greece almost did. Yes. And this whole debt load thing should be a tremendous concern to us. Let me back up a little bit to what happened with COVID-19. When COVID struck uh, the world, people were fearful. They were afraid. They were panic-stricken. And they went to their governments and said, we need help. We need protection. So governments extended their powers and began to do things that they hadn't done before. And then as COVID continued to spread and people continued to be afraid and governments were having low levels of success dealing with it. Eventually, what we saw happen was over time, governments began to yield their power to a few key voices in health organizations, like the World Health Organization. And these governments were saying, tell us what to do. So in essence, what happened was these very, very few voices, the people at the top of the National Institutes of Health, the Centers for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, they were saying what the whole rest of the world should do. Basically, what happened is governments took advantage of a crisis to impose more power on the world. And the debt crisis that we see happening today, that would be an enormous, enormous opportunity, uh, a big door for the governments to walk through and say, we need to impose greater powers on the world so that this never happens again. When you talk about crushing debt loads that are crushing people and crushing nations worldwide, I would say, and I talk about this scenario in the book, I would say it it leaves open the very real possibility that there would be such a severe economic collapse that the governments of the world come together and say, look, we need to make sure this never happens again. But the only way you can make sure something like that never happens again is to increase government's involvement in how the economy is run. And it's interesting that when you look at Revelation 13, you look at the world that the Antichrist is going to rule. The one place that Revelation 13 focuses on with regard to the Antichrist rule, it's his rule over the economy, the mark of the beast, whether people can buy or sell. So that tells us that a government's ability to rule over the economy is a very, very, very powerful area in which it would be easier for a one world government to eventually evolve. One of the other mega clues that you discuss, and this this hits home today in what we're witnessing in our culture, is the moral and spiritual corruption. And the United States, which for a long time was considered, at least on the face, to be a Christian nation, has succumbed to evil. Yes, uh, that's very true. When Jesus taught his disciples about the end times, 
he said that in those days it will be as in the days of Noah. And if we look back at Genesis chapter 6, it describes what the days of Noah were like. And it says that every thought and every intent of man's heart was evil continually all the time. And that certainly describes our world today. If we want to see what our world is like today, we just look at Second Timothy chapter 3, where it talks about how people will be lovers of self. As the Apostle Paul describes what it means to be a lover of self, he gives a description of about 20 different characteristics. And all of these characteristics are connected with immorality or sin or evil or wickedness in some way or other. And also, we can look at what Isaiah 5.20 says about people calling good evil and calling evil good. Well, we live in that age. We live in a time when people are looking at good, and they call it evil. And they look at evil, and they call it good. And when you have even the church losing its sense of how severe sin is, where people in the church are rationalizing that it's okay for small sin to exist in my life, God is not going to be all that concerned about that. And we categorize sins as major sins and minor sins, and we uh, lose our sense of how important it is for us to live pure and holy lives. That's an indicator that even the church is slipping into the ways of the world, uh, which is very unfortunate. And the church, many churches here where we are, but across the country and probably around the world, are embracing sinful lifestyles and sinful acts that the Bible tells us are clearly wrong. How do they get away with that and people don't understand what's going on, the subversion? They rationalize it. One way of looking at it is this. Going back to what uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, that uh, in the last days people will be lovers of themselves. If we look at what happened in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, in essence they were saying, God, we love ourselves more than we love you. We're going to do what we want. We're not going to do what you want. What they had done was they had rationalized sin. They had put themselves first. And when you put self first before God, it's easier to rationalize sin. And the same is true for people today, including Christians. If we put self first, if we say, well, I know God wants me to be happy, so it shouldn't be a problem for me to engage in, you know, whatever sin it is that we're rationalizing. When we reject God in that way, there's a sense in which we're also rejecting truth. And when we reject God and when we reject truth, we also affect our moral compass. We lose our ability to discern right from wrong because we've rationalized sin and we say that sin is okay. And this is where the church ends up hurting itself and losing its witness to the world. I'd like to speak finally about the hostilities toward Israel and the Jewish people that you cover in the book. God tells us that those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. And we see a lot of cursing of Israel these days. We do. And... A couple of things that are very interesting. People who survived the Holocaust during World War II, they are looking around, and they are saying, we see it happening all over again. We're very concerned. The trends that we see out there disconcerting to us. And basically what they're saying is they see a resurgence of the kind of anti-Semitism that they saw back in World War II. Now, that anti-Semitism... The concentration camps, the Holocaust, didn't just arise out of nothing. It all went back to the 1920s and the 1930s, where Germany particularly, but other European governments too, took small steps to discriminate against the Jewish people. There were little things that people would do 
to show that they didn't like the Jewish people. And eventually those small steps became bigger steps to where it evolved to the point where there was all-out anti-Semitism. One of the trends that should concern us today is we know the power of social media. And if we look at what's going on in the uh, social media world with regard to anti-Semitism, research shows that 84% of the social media posts that show anti-Jewish or anti-Israeli sentiment after they have been reported to the social media company, this is after they've been reported, 84% of those are still left in place. And then another thing that we see happening is the boycott, divestment, sanction movement, where there is an organization that is telling college campuses, telling businesses, and telling individuals, don't have anything to do with Israel. Don't invest your money in it. Don't have any connections with it. Remove all your associates with Israel. And so anti-Semitism continues to grow through these different organizations, through uh, social media, and even as uh, we see the Arab countries in the Middle East showing their hatred toward Israel, it's been shown that every time anti-Semitism increases in the Middle East, there is a reflective increase in the rest of the world as well. Steve Miller, it's such an important book. If people want to get a copy of Foreshadows, 12 Mega Clues That Jesus' Return is Nearer Than Ever, or if they'd like to follow you online, how can they do that? They can go to stevemillerresources.com, and there I have a podcast that comes out every week. They can also go to Telegram Messenger Channel and go to Foreshadows Report. I give daily updates on Telegram Messenger Channel. My Telegram posts also show up at the stevemillerresources.com address. There's a link, uh, stevemillerresources.com, and they can get my podcast. They can, and for the book itself, they can go anywhere. They can go to Amazon. They can go to christianbook.com. They can go to Barnes & Noble. Anywhere where retailers sell the book, they can go to. I hope that people will take advantage of the opportunity to read this most important book. And Steve Miller, thank you for joining us today on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Well, thank you very much. It was a privilege to be able to talk to your audience. Thank you so much. That concludes another edition of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.